So let's read the text together. Math or excuse me, Luke 18, verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time, and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and mistreated, and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. And after they have, I'm sorry, but the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. We pray, O Father, that you would cause your Holy Spirit to be working in the hearts of your people today, to convict and to comfort and to teach and to encourage and to edify and to motivate, Lord, that you would transform all of us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we examined the story of the rich young ruler. And it seems like this guy was a perfect potential recruit for the kingdom of God. Number one, he's young meaning he's got lots of energy, he's got lots of idealism, he's got lots of enthusiasm. But not only is he young, he's a ruler. So he's powerful. Probably that meant that he was a ruler of a synagogue. So he has influence. He has prominence in the community. And they didn't let just anybody become the ruler of a synagogue. This guy is probably heads and shoulders above the rest of the community in terms of his religious devotion and his morality and his... Uh, being devout, the keeping of the law. So he's, he's young, he's also a ruler. Thirdly, he's rich. Luke says he's extremely rich. An interesting thing for something to happen to such a young person, to be powerful and rich at the same time. What a great potential recruit for Jesus' kingdom. You know, bring a rich man into your disciples and you've got someone that can bankroll your ministry. Not only that, the guy's moral. He says, all these things I've kept from my youth up. Well, of course, he didn't keep the law in its spirituality and in its strictness, but in his mind, he had kept the Ten Commandments. So he's a moral man. He's a Jew. He believes in God. He believes in the Scriptures. He believes in judgment to come. And this guy, according to Mark's Gospel, ran up and knelt before Jesus. So he runs. It teaches us that he's eager Jesus was setting out on a mission, and he didn't want to lose the opportunity, so he runs to Jesus, and then he gets down on his knees, in the dust, on his face, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? So he's gripped with the seriousness of the question. He knows he lacks eternal life. He wants it, and so he eagerly runs up to Jesus, and he also isn't so concerned about saving face. Did you notice that? Here's a man who everybody else admired, the ruler of the synagogue, wealthy, rich, prominent, powerful. And he publicly asks a question that could uh, embarrass him. He's admitting he doesn't have eternal life. Everybody else thought he must have. If anybody had eternal life, it would be that guy. But he's publicly admitting before everybody, Lord, I need it. I don't have it, and I need it. 
So this is an evangelist dream. You know, this is the guy that everybody wishes would. I mean, when's the last time somebody like him ran up to you, knelt down before you and said, please, Brian, tell me how I can have eternal life. That's never happened in my life. But it happened to Jesus. And so we think, if Jesus can't bring this guy into the kingdom, he's a pretty bad evangelist, right? <laughs> Jesus would probably flunk evangelism 101 in most of our churches. Because we tell people that if someone's interested in becoming a Christian, we just flood them with grace. We tell them about the love of God. <laughs> we tell them about the mercy of God. We tell them about God's tender mercies and compassions toward them. We tell them that salvation is a free gift and all they have to do is receive it. And of course there's truth in all of that. I'm not downplaying that. But Jesus didn't follow that evangelistic method. Of all things, he points this guy back to the law. He, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what about the commandments? He talks about five of the commandments from the second table, man's duty to man. And the guy says, well, I've kept all of those. And so Jesus then refers to the first table. The very first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Money was his God. He had broken that commandment. He's seeking to use the law of God to convict this man of his sin. And at that point, Jesus says, One thing you still lack, sell everything that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and come and follow me. Notice he doesn't tell this man to repeat a sinner's prayer. He doesn't tell him to accept Christ into his heart. He doesn't say, just accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Jesus doesn't do all of those things that we do today in our popular evangelistic methods. Jesus was radical. <laughs> Jesus was calling for an all-out surrender of that man to give up everything he had and to call Jesus his Master and Lord and to begin following him. You see, Jesus will settle for nothing less than surrender to his lordship and following him. Now, a lot of people, and I've done this the same, same thing, when I've read this passage before, I put all the emphasis on this idea that he had to sell everything he had and give it away to the poor. And that's the big idea to take away from this passage. But I don't think that way anymore. I really think the big idea is this, come follow me. The only reason he tells him to sell everything he had and give it away to the poor is because he couldn't follow Jesus unless he did that. Do you remember the illustration of the five-year-old boy clutching all the candy? He's got M&Ms and Baby Ruths and Snickers and Reese's and you know, all this candy. And his rich uncle comes up and says, hey, I've got $1,000 bills for you. It's your birthday. Here's your present. And the little boy won't take it because if he does, he knows he has to let loose of all that candy he's got to take the money. And sinners are just like that. They can't see the worth and value and beauty and glory in Christ, but they see all kinds of value and beauty and glory in their sin. And so they're holding on to this little candy, and they can't let it go to receive the greatest of all treasures, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, Christ above all. So unless this happens in a sinner's heart, he can never be saved. Unless he, his mind and his thinking and his heart somehow changes to see the beauty and value and worth of Christ, he'll never be saved. And that's why Jesus says, well, the disciples said, um, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. I'll tell you how hard. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, how hard is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? How hard is that? It's impossible. And that's why he says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. It's not only impossible for a rich man to be saved, it's impossible for any man to be saved if it's left up to him. Do you see that? With people, it is impossible, Jesus says. With people. But not with God. Because God can make what is impossible with people possible. God can open up the, the eyes of the heart of a man to see the glory and the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ so that everything else looks like manure in comparison with it. That's what happened to Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Everything else is rubbish compared to the glory of knowing Christ, he says. That's what has to happen. It, he can say all the sinner's prayers he wants. He can walk down as many aisles as he wants. He can accept Jesus into his heart as many times as he wants. But if that doesn't happen, that man isn't saved. So Christ calls him to forsake everything and to follow him. This rich young ruler was unwilling to do that. So he went away very sad, and he went away empty-handed. He came to get eternal life, and he left without it, right? And that prompts Peter. Good old Peter. You know, he's always piping up. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter says, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And in Matthew, Matthew adds, What then shall there be for us? This rich young ruler would not do what you told him to do. He left away, he left disappointed and sad. But Lord, we did do what you called us to do. We have forsaken everything to follow you. What is there going to be for us? And then Jesus answers that question in our text. And so this morning, as we move through this text, I want to answer two questions. The first question is, what does it mean for us to forsake all and follow Jesus? What does that look like today? The second question is, what can we expect when we forsake all and follow Jesus? You got those two questions? What does it mean to forsake all and follow Christ? Secondly, what can we expect when we forsake all and follow Jesus? Now, verses 28 to 31, Jesus addresses those who have left everything to follow him. And he tells them what they can expect in this life. What would be the closest parallel, the, the closest application today to someone who did just what these disciples did? Like Peter and the, the other 11, they did leave everything, didn't they? They left their families. They left their homes. They left their jobs, their fishing nets, their vocations. They left everything and just left it behind and went to follow Jesus. Who today it would be the closest parallel to that. A missionary. Missionaries. I think that's probably the closest application to this passage would be those missionaries who actually do. They, they leave their jobs. They leave their moms and dads and brothers and sisters. Usually they do take their families with them. But, I mean, they leave their cars behind. They leave everything and they just go. And they intend to live in a particular land many of them, till the day of their, their death, and just proclaim the gospel and raise up disciples in that country. And you know, we need to be a church that prays that God would raise up more missionaries. 
Wouldn't it be cool if we had people from our own church that God laid on their heart to go someplace and to proclaim to an unreached people group the glories of Christ? That'd be awesome. We ought to be praying that God would be moving among us, that there would be missions that would result, foreign missions. And until that time, we ought to be very generous in our giving towards missions so that the gospel gets a, 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 around the world. 40% of the world is still unreached with the gospel, 40%, four out of 10 people. And what is there, seven billion, yeah, seven billion people now, I think, or more, I think there's more than that. And that's a lot of people that still need the gospel, who've never heard the name of Christ. But does that mean then that this has no application for the ordinary Christian? These are people who forsook everything to follow Jesus. Does that mean that we don't have to worry about this text? It's got nothing to say to us? You know, a lot of times we love the story of the rich young ruler, and we love to point out the fact that Jesus didn't call everybody to sell everything they had and to give it away to the poor. It was just him. And we like that because that lets us off the hook. Oh, good. Good. I don't have to sell everything I have, and I don't have to give it away. Oh, thank you, Lord. I'm glad there was only one guy you told to do that. But not so fast. Go back a couple chapters in Luke to chapter 14. And look at verse 33. Jesus says there, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. In the New King James it says, None of you can be my disciple who does not forsake all that he has. It's basically the very same call that he gave to this rich young ruler. Now, in the rich young ruler's case, he had to literally liquidate everything he had, give it away. How do we fulfill this command of Jesus Christ in Luke 14, 33, to give up all our possessions, to forsake all that we have? I believe there is an application to every Christian. That we can't just say, oh, that, that's only for the 1% of believers out there. Now, I believe this is for 100% of Christians. There is an application to be made. So, how would we apply it? Number one, Christ must come before anyone else in your life. You have to forsake any relationship that competes with Him. In other words, He must be first and foremost before anyone else in the world. And I get that back from Luke 14 again where he tells his disciples in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. You have to hate your family. Not in a malicious, bitter way, but in the sense that you will always prefer Christ and give allegiance to him before any other human being. And I've known a lot of Christians who've been entangled in relationships and they were unwilling to give up that relationship even though it wasn't according to the will of God. Christ must come first before any other person. When Debbie and I were married July 11th, 1981, we wrote our own vows and we repeated those vows to each other. And I had been saved about a year and a half when I got married. I was a young believer. And this is how I started my vows. Debbie, as I take you to be my wife, I will, by the grace of God, 
love and serve you more than any other person or thing in this life except for my love and service to Jesus. So even though I was a very young Christian, somehow God had already taught me this truth that he had to be first. And what does it mean to forsake all and follow Jesus? It means that he comes before anybody else in this world. Your wife, your children, your friends, your, your parents, everyone. He calls the shots. He must be on the throne of your heart. So if someone that you love wants you to do one thing and Jesus wants you to do another, guess who you have to obey? It's Christ. Always. Secondly, to forsake all and follow Jesus means that Christ must come before your plans and your dreams. Not just above other people, but the things that you want to do in life. The dreams that you have. And I get this also from Luke 14, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Of course, these disciples didn't want to carry a cross. They knew what that meant. That meant they were going to die. That's what carrying a cross meant in the first century. You were going to your death. Jesus is saying, you have to be willing to come after me, and I'm going to a cross, and you have to be willing to take up a cross yourself. Now, that was far from their dream life. You know, that, <laughs> they had never, oh, this is my dream, to carry a cross to my death. Jesus is saying, you're going to have to be willing to put my interests and the advancement of my kingdom before your personal interests and goals and plans and pleasures. And often, our plans come into conflict with God's purposes for us, don't they? A lot of people say, I just want to, this is my plan. I'm going to work real hard and get rich. I'm going to retire early. I'm going to buy a house, a big house on the beach. And I'm going to sit with my feet in the waves. And I'm going to drink my mar martinis. And I'm going to watch the sunsets. And I'm just going to enjoy life, you know. Problem is, that's probably not God's will for your life. God has bigger things for you to do than sit on the beach watching the sunset. He's got a whole world of lost people he wants you to impact. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, this is how, how Mark puts it. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. There's the key. It's not just leaving things. It's leaving things for Jesus' sake and Jesus' gospel sake. Now, over in Luke, he puts it this way. For the sake of a kingdom of God. Christ calls every believer to forsake all for the kingdom of God. To forsake any relationship that would come before him. To forsake any plan or dream that would interfere with the advancement of the kingdom of God. And thirdly, he must come before money and possessions. He says that, we, and we've already read it, Luke 14, 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Now, in this passage back in Luke, Jesus is talking to people who have left houses and farms as well as their family, as well as their vocation and jobs. He's, they've left it behind. The rich young ruler failed the test that Jesus gave him. How is it that God is calling us to forsake 
or to give up all of our own possessions. He doesn't call every Christian to sell everything he has and give it away to the poor, but he does call every Christian to give up, to renounce ownership in all that he has. In other words, he has to recognize that he's a servant, Christ is master, and Christ calls the shots now, not only over some things, but even over the way he spends his money. Do you guys really, do you really get that? Do you believe that? Do you follow that in your life? Do you pray and ask Jesus before you make a, a decision for a, a big purchase? Do you consider God's will? Do you realize that you're just a money manager? It's not your money. It's not my money. This isn't my house. It's not my vehicles out there. It's God's. I'm his servant. I am to do his will with anything that he has entrusted to me, including how, whatever money I have in the bank, all of us have the same responsibility to use and to funnel our money and possessions in the way God wants us to. So here's a good question for you. Do you spend your money and possessions more on your own pleasures and your wants or to advance the kingdom of God? To increase the glory of Christ. And it's very easy to find out. Just take a look at your checkbook register and just read what are you spending your money on. How much are you spending on your own pleasures, fleshly pleasures, hobbies, interests, and how much are you giving to advance the work of the kingdom? That's a really, really good question all of us should ask ourselves. I mean, add it up. <laughs> add it up. If you're spending more on, on pleasures rather than the advancement of the kingdom, something's drastically wrong with your stewardship. Something's really wrong with that. So, I believe this is how we can answer that question. What does it mean for us to forsake all and follow Jesus? It means that Christ comes first before anyone. Christ comes first before our plans and dreams. Christ comes first before our money and possessions. Now, let's look at that second question. What can we expect when we forsake all and follow Jesus? Well, Jesus answers that in verses 28 to 31. And we're also going to take a look at verses 31 to 34 as well. But first of all, you can expect to have a spiritual family. Notice what he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. The NLT translates Matthew 19.27 as, What will we get? The rich young ruler would not give up all that he had to follow. We did do that, so what will we get? Lord, what? <laughs> Is there any kind of an, a reward here? And notice that Jesus divides the rewards, the blessings, into two kinds. This life and the life to come. He mentions here in Luke 18, verse 30, at this time and in the age to come. Now, in the age to come, the blessing is eternal life. We talked a lot about that last week, so we're, we won't do that today. Let's talk about what he promises in this life. And the first thing he promises them is a spiritual family. Now, it's made more clear from Mark's gospel in chapter 10. 
Let me read this to you. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for the sake and for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Okay, Lord, well, what are you talking about? What, what is he going to receive a hundred times as much of? Well, he answers that. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So he's telling them, if you give up your family, if, if you have to leave your family for a time because God calls you and you can only go alone, you can't take your family with you, I know that's a whole other issue that we could talk about for a long time. It's actually true that Hudson Taylor left his children behind in England and went to China. And I don't, you know, that's a hard call. Evidently, he must have believed it was the will of God for him. Um, that's a hard one. Because God has entrusted the... Uh, the raising and the training of our children to us, not to anybody else. So I don't know that I would agree with Hudson Taylor, but he felt like that was God's will for him. Here, Peter has left his wife, and I don't know if Peter had children or not, but if he did, he left his children for a time, temporarily, because he's following Jesus now. But if we do that, what does Jesus say? You get another family. In fact, you get a great big family, a hundred times as much of brothers and sisters, mothers and children, a <laughs> hundred times as many. You see, when you become a Christian, you find out that you have brothers and sisters all over the world. And it's, it's really wonderful. I, I've only been to a few places outside of America, but I've been to Minsk, Minsk, Belarus, I've been to Mexico, and I've been to China. And in all three of those places, I've met people that are part of my family my spiritual family, the family of God. And it is so enriching to get to know them and to see their love for Jesus and their joy in the Lord. The very same thing that we possess here in America, they possess there. They, they may look different on the outside and follow different customs and eat different things and dress differently, but on the inside we're the same. That same new heart that God gives to all of His children. I remember... Gosh, it must have been about 1979. I was a brand new Christian. And I got mixed up and I, f I spent a weekend in a, in a camp somewhere in the Bay Area that the Moonies were running. You guys know who the Moonies are? Reverend Sun Young Moon? Never heard of him? He's, he, it's a cult. <laughs> I thought they were Christians. And I was young and naive. And they told me they were Christians. And this is a great conference they're having. Why don't I come? It's all free. So I did. And I found out these guys believe some crazy stuff. They believe that Jesus failed in his mission and that the Reverend Moon has to come to succeed where Jesus failed, that he had to raise up this perfect family. Anyway, I remember by the third day I'd figured out these guys aren't, they don't believe the way I do. <laughs> they don't love Jesus the way I do. And I thought, how in the world am I going to get out of here? I didn't even know where I was. Literally, we, we went in the middle of the night. It was dark and it was raining. We're singing songs at the top of our lungs in this van, driving to who knows where. We got to this camp, spent three days there, and after the third day, I thought, how in the world am I going to get out of here? I, I was playing the five-string banjo in a, a gospel bluegrass band. My band was way in Southern California, so I had to get down there. But I didn't have a car. 
I was in the middle of nowhere, and lo and behold, the Lord led me to find another Christian that was at this place. And we found each other. We might have been the, the only two born-again Christians in the place. And we started praying. Lord, help us get out of this place. <laughs> and there's Moonies that are saying, they're chanting around us, Stop that! You shouldn't be praying! Stop right now! And we just kept praying. We held hands and prayed. And when we were done, he opened up his wallet. He took out 40 bucks and he gave it to me. And he says, here's your bus ride to get where you need to go. Still remember that. I had no money. I didn't have a dime to my name. I didn't know how I was going to get to Southern California. God's people... Not only is this a great big family, 100 times as much, it's a generous family. That's why there's houses and farms that we will inherit. Not because they're ours, but because God's people own houses and farms and they're willing to share them with God's people who go in the name of Jesus to do His will. I'm sure that you've been the beneficiary, haven't you? Of God's people blessing you in material ways from one time or another. Amen. I mean, I've seen people give cars to other believers um, bring them into their house when they had no place to go and just let them stay there for months on end. I mean, God's family should be like that, right? We, we should be sharing the resources that the Lord has entrusted to us with one another. Hudson Taylor, the man I just mentioned a while back, he was a missionary to China for over 50 years. And at the end of his life, he said this, I never made a sacrifice. Now you look at his life and say, well, how could he say that? He made tons of sacrifices to bring the gospel to the Chinese. But God had been so rich to him and had blessed him so richly that he didn't feel like anything that he had done was really a sacrifice. And it's really not just an outworn cliche. It's true that you can't outgive God. You forsake all to follow Jesus and you'll find that God is going to provide every need and he'll use the spiritual family that you were brought in to do that for you. So that's the first thing we can expect. A big, generous, loving, spiritual family that God will use to enrich your life. Secondly, you can expect persecutions. Now Luke doesn't tell us this, but Mark does. Mark brings that little tidbit in. Matthew doesn't tell us that either. Mark is the only one who tells us this, but he does. <laughs> Mark chapter 10. Verse 30. He says, you're going to receive a hundred times as many houses and farms and family members along with persecutions. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it's inevitable, isn't it? When there's two kingdoms that are opposite to each other, colliding together, persecution will be the inevitable result. And you know what? Here in America, we are seeing two kingdoms starting to collide pretty drastically. We have seen a greater downhill slide here in America in the last 15 years than has ever been seen before in the history of our nation. In the last 15 years, we've seen the legalizing of same-sex marriage, the normalizing of homosexuality. We've seen a proliferation of people who no longer get married. They just move in with each other. I mean, when we go doing outreach and knocking on doors, it's rare to find anybody that's married. It just, where did that happen? I mean, what, when I was a kid, that was sort of a taboo. You didn't do that. 
you know, you, people look down on that. It's just normal anymore. I mean, we are, we are, we are just, I call it the moral downgrade. We are sliding into a cesspool morally here in this nation. And if Christians refuse to compromise on God's word, and the world keeps getting more and more immoral, what's going to happen? There's going to be a collision between those two kingdoms and persecution will become inevitable here right in the United States. It's inevitable. And we we're already seeing that, right? Remember the, the judge back in Kentucky who refused to give out marriage licenses to same-sex couples and she was put in jail for a time. What about in Oregon? The people that own the bakery and they refused to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. They had to pay $135,000 and their, their bakery went out of business. I mean, we're already starting to see it, and it's only going to get worse as long as we keep going in the same direction as a nation. So we, know, we need to prepare for that. We need to know it's coming, and we need to pray for courage that we will not compromise the Word of God, and we won't compromise our convictions as the people of God, but we'll stand for Christ, and we'll keep proclaiming the truth of Christ no matter what happens around us. It's no longer... The communist countries or the Muslim-dominated countries, it's going to be right here where we live. So we've got to get ready. We need to know it's coming and we need to prepare. And uh, God will give His grace. His grace will be sufficient for the people of God. In fact, it always has a purifying effect on the church. It's always good for the church in the long run. That's probably why we have such flabby, uh, weak, anemic churches here in America. It's because we're so rich. We're so comfortable. Well, maybe God's going to do some purging. So that's the second thing you can expect if you give up everything to follow Jesus. A big, generous spiritual family, persecutions, and thirdly, you can expect a certain level of confusion in your life. Let me show you that. That's from verses 31 to 34. Then Jesus took the twelve aside. And he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man are going to be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and mistreated, and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, Jesus is being extremely clear here. There's nothing ambiguous about what he's telling them. It's very detailed. Very detailed, right? He's saying, I'm going to die. We're going up to Jerusalem, and when we get there, I'm going to die. I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be mistreated. And then they're going to crucify me, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And you think, okay, that seems clear to me. I, I got it. But look at verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. They didn't get a single thing that Jesus was telling them. <laughs> and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. They understood none of these things. It was hidden from them. They didn't comprehend the things that Jesus was talking about. Now why not? Why would this be so hard for them to grasp? It's because they had preconceived ideas. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they believed in a victorious, conquering, ruling Messiah who would overcome the Romans, who would be a political savior, establishing this earthly kingdom. And Jesus is talking about dying. 
That didn't fit into their preconceived ideas. That made no sense to them. We get into a lot of trouble when we go to God's Word and hear Jesus speak today and come with our preconceived ideas. And all of us do that. We can't escape it. All of us have these biases that we approach the Word of God with. And that's why we still have confusion when we read God's Word to a great extent. This isn't the first time Jesus had talked about his impending death. This is actually the sixth time that he has uh, explicitly mentioned it. I'll just show you a few of those. Luke 9.22 Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Or how about Luke 9.44 let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Verse 45 says, But they didn't understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask Him about this statement. Very same thing. Or how about Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Of course, he's talking about the baptism of his sufferings. I have a baptism to undergo, and I'm distressed until that's over, until that's done. Or how about Luke chapter 13, verse 32. Go and tell that fox, Herod, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Here's another reference to Jesus perishing, not outside of Jerusalem, but inside of Jerusalem. So he's telling them over and over and over, he's going to die. How about chapter 17, verse 25? But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So coming back to Luke chapter 18, notice how he puts this. We are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. I'm going to die, and it's not going to be an accident. It's not because God is not in control. It's because God is in control that this is going to happen. The prophets spoke about this. Isaiah spoke about it. Isaiah 53. David wrote of it in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. They wrote about the suffering Savior to come. This is prophesied in the scriptures. It must take place. And then he's very detailed. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. This is the first time Jesus mentions the Gentiles in his death. So, he's been speaking about his death all along, but he's becoming more and more specific. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked, mistreated, and spit upon. After they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day, he'll rise again. The reason I bring all this up is because the disciples heard the words of Jesus, but they didn't understand them. They were filled with confusion over those words. And sometimes we experience the same thing. At least I know I do. 
I read the words of Scripture, and sometimes I don't get it. I don't understand how they fit together. I'll give you a few examples. I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. And I believe the Bible teaches Jesus is man. Well, which is he? God or man? Yes. <laughs> He's both. He's God and man, one person. Well, that doesn't really make too much sense to me. I don't intellectually comprehend that. I'm confused about that, but I believe that. Or how about the fact that God is one and God is three? Well, which is it? It's both <laughs> at the same time. One God, three persons. Or how about the one that God is all-powerful and all-good, but yet there's evil and suffering in the world. So if God's all-good, and He has the power to stop anything He wants to, why does He let it happen? Right? I mean, that's the age-old mystery that everybody's been talking about. No one has a, a real definitive answer for that question. What about this? The Bible teaches that men are unable to respond to the gospel apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a moral inability within sinners. They're spiritually dead. No man can come to the Father or to Christ except the Father who sent him draws that person. Right? But then... John chapter 3, right around verse 17 or 18, it says that, Jesus, that God is going to hold men responsible and accountable for not coming. They can't, but God's going to hold them responsible to do it. Now, that, I'm a bit confused about that. I believe both of them. I hold it in tension, but I guess I'm going to, when I finally meet Jesus face to face, or some of these questions I'm going to get answers to, I think. I hope. <laughs> what about the one that, you know, the Bible says God loves me, but He's intentionally allowing suffering in my life. Sometimes that doesn't make sense. Sometimes that's confusing to me. There's a lot of things that I'm confused about. Right? Your, your pastor doesn't have the corner on the truth. <laughs> he, he doesn't understand all of the scriptures. I don't. I, I want to, but I, I've, been, I've been at this thing for, I was saved in 79. What is that? 37 years? I've been studying the Bible for 37 years and I still don't have it all figured out. I still have to trust God when I don't understand all the particulars. And that's true of every disciple. When you're confused about things, you need to trust God. Trust His character and wait. Be patient. And in due time, God only knows when that due time is, God will reveal to you answers. But hold on to him. Don't let go. My, my, my precious son just told me a few weeks ago that was something that he was unable to do growing up in a Christian household. He, he saw things that he couldn't reconcile and rather than just trust God and wait, he said, I, I just can't hold on to this anymore. He let go of Christ. He, left, he let go of the scriptures and now he's an agnostic. A 30-year-old agnostic. It's a very sad thing. But, I mean, I understand from a human level why that happened. But as believers, we can't let go. Never let go of what God has revealed to you in the light when you're facing the darkness. Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. There are certain things that are secret things, and God has chosen not to reveal them. And you know, if He had chosen to reveal them, maybe we'd have a lot less confusion in the Christian life. But for some reason, God has seen fit not to reveal certain things. Maybe it's because He wants us to walk by faith and not by sight, and He wants our faith to grow in this lifetime, and to learn to trust Him, and hold on to His hand, even when it's hard and painful. And as Christians, we go through hard and painful times, don't we? Trust Him. Trust Him. So as we wrap this up, what does it look like to, fall, to forsake all and follow Jesus? It means that you put Christ first before anyone else in this world. It means that you put Him first before any dreams or plans of your own. It means that you put Him first before your money and possessions. And just let me just ask you, is that true about you? Have you done that? Have you ever given Christ your life as a blank check and say, okay, Lord, just write in whatever you want. Send me wherever you want me to go. I'll, I'll do whatever it is you want me to do, Lord. Have you ever told him that? Anything. I think that's what he wants from us. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to the jungles of Africa where the mosquitoes are this big. No way, Lord. <laughs> Well, you know what? If the Lord wanted to send you to the jungles of Africa, I bet he would put a, a real hunger and love and zeal for the people in that particular community. And you couldn't wait to go there. I, I really believe that. The Lord would put a burden on your heart and this calling on your heart where you would be eager to go. The Lord is good in that respect. So that's what it looks like. And God is calling every Christian to that kind of a commitment. Secondly, what can we expect if we do that? We can expect a beautiful, big, generous, spiritual family. And right here, this is part of that. Your brothers and sisters right here. You can expect persecution. You can expect it. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution in one form or another. You can expect that. And thirdly, you can expect a certain level of confusion in the Christian life that you just have to wait it out. You just have to trust God and let Him answer those questions in His time. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word this morning. I pray that You would zero in on any particular aspect in people's lives today that they need to take heed to and do business with You about. Would You, Holy Spirit, do that work in their soul and Show them something from this message today that they need, to, uh, they need to pray about. They need to talk to you about. They need to do, uh, do business with you about. They need to repent of some things, perhaps, Lord. Work, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.